Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. On December the 8th, 1941... The 32nd president of the United States of America, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, would give one of the most famous speeches in American politics in which 81% of the world would tune in to hear exactly what he would say via radio in front of a joint session of Congress. As these folks joined in, they would later find out that this speech would one day become best known for one of the lines In it. And it would read this. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces by the Empire of Japan. You see, just hours before giving this speech, the Empire of Japan attacked the U.S. military bases at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and the Philippines and declared war on the United States and the British Empire. Using more than 350 aircraft in a surprise military attack would destroy naval ships, an aircraft of the United States and kill over 2,400 civilians and military personnel. His speech was worded in an effort to reinforce his portrayal of the United States as a victim to unprovoked Japanese aggression. As the speech would appeal to the patriotism of American people, it had an immediate positive response and a long-lasting impact. And soon after giving this speech... Congress declares war on Japan. Or January the 20th, 1961, John F. Kennedy would give the speech most well-defined by the line, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And only a little less than two years later, the same president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, on September the 12th, 1962, on the campus of Rice University in Houston, Texas, in front of 40,000 people, would say the words in an effort to persuade the American people to invest in the Apollo program and launch a nationwide initiative to put a man on the moon. The truth is that the U.S. was losing the space race to the Soviet Union, who had just a few years prior successfully launched a satellite into outer space. And we needed a call to the American pioneering spirit of something to get behind. And John F. Kennedy would say these words. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Or the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on August the 28th, 1963 would say the now famous speech in the middle, these words, I have a dream where my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. 
And as we look at these famous speeches now over the last three quarters of a century, I would submit to you that it is not what was said in the moment. It was not the words per se that was said in the speech, but instead it was all about the movement that created as a result of the words that were said on various platforms. If you have your Bibles today, go ahead and grab them. We're going to camp out in the book of Mark. If you're new to scripture, that's awesome. We would say welcome. The book of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. To find it, you're going to kind of split the Bible in half and split the Bible in half again. It's about 70, 75% or so of the way through scripture. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 to begin with. And I would submit to you that one of the greatest speeches that has ever been told has ever been said on planet earth was what Jesus said in Mark chapter one. Matthew's gospel and Matthew four and Luke's gospel would record a similar story. And later Jesus would even ask an important question to his disciples. But what I would submit it is that it is not what was said. In fact, it was very few words of not what was said in the moment, but instead the movement that created as a result And it's ragtag group of men who Jesus would ask a series of questions and a couple of statements from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of walks of life. They would experience life together in community day in and day out, rubbing shoulders, serving life alongside each other. And what they would experience as a result of the response to what Jesus said in that moment was all too important for the movement that came out of it. It would forever change the trajectory of their life. And let's camp out in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Here's what it says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, also known as Peter. He saw Peter and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Other translations said, May I will make you a fisher of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. This is an invitation for them to come with Jesus. It's an invitation for them to do life with him. It's an invitation to follow him. It's an invitation to join in with him. And as he invites the first disciples and he says, follow me, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, follow me and I'm going to make you a better husband. He doesn't say, follow me and I'm going to make you more organized. I'm going to make you richer. I'm going to make you more disciplined. I'd like that for myself. I'm going to make you more spiritual. I'm going to make you smarter. He doesn't say those things. And the disciples don't have a moment to be able to ask clarifying questions. As we read scripture, we find out what they do is at once they leave their nets and they follow Jesus. As we launch into this brand new series called Trading Up. It's all about trading our life for the life of Jesus. It's all about trading in our agenda, our everything for his. And I would submit to you that trading up means a few things. Number one, trading up means letting go. Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. At once, immediately, right away. They didn't delay. At once, 
They left their nets and followed him. And Jesus didn't ask for just something from them. He asked for everything from them. Their identity, their family business, everything they've always known, their future. It was a big deal. Jesus is asking them here to leave your nets, leave everything you know for something you don't know. But I'm going to make you something that you're not already you were to continue reading, we, we find out that the dads in the boat are probably like, no, 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 don't worry about us. Follow him. Don't worry about us. At once they leave them, the dad in the boat with all the hired men at once. And over the next few weeks, my challenge to all of us is that we might find out that our call is much the same as theirs. We may not know what tomorrow looks like or the next week or the next month. But in this moment, as Jesus is calling his disciples to participate together, collectively, as a unit, as a community, to walk day in and day out with Jesus. And as Jesus calls his disciples in this moment to something they've never experienced for for them to join in with a movement that would follow. After these guys make a decision to trade up. To let go of their nets, their trade, their identity, to leave all of that behind. These men would do life and ministry with Jesus. They would see him do all the things that we read about in scripture. Day in and day out. They would see him, 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 him heal the blind people. Blind people would see. Deaf people would hear. Lame people would walk. Hungry people would be well fed. And I mean well fed with food left over, right? And oh yeah, dead people would come to life, just to name a few. And then we get to the important question that he would ask them in just a few chapters later, as Mark would have it. The disciples are doing life with Jesus. They're in community. They're doing life together. And Jesus' question, although maybe collective, always warrants an individual response. And each one of them had to answer the question, That Jesus would ask them. Perhaps it's one of the greatest questions through all of scripture. It's found in the book of Mark. As you know, that's where we're going to camp out today. And I would suggest that Mark works really hard to make sure that his audience understands that throughout his pages, as he wrote, throughout his pages, they would understand, the audience would understand what's exactly at stake here. Over and over and over again, we see this idea that a trade is being offered Earlier in Mark, Jesus was asking them to make a decision to trade in the way they, what, the way, what they knew, the past, their identity and everything else for a new way, for the way of God, for the kingdom of God. And Jesus's message from the very beginning centers around this idea of repenting from leaving the familiar, turning the familiar behind you, pressing on towards something different, trading the old for the new. It's the very thing that the Apostle Paul would write about later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So we see this theme running through the book of Mark, this idea of making a trade. And anytime you make a trade, just like in the game, right? Anytime you make a trade, you have to make a conscious decision that what you are leaving behind is not as good as what you are gaining in front of you. Every time you make a decision about making a trade, you have to make a conscious decision about what you are getting in return. In Mark 8, we kind of read the climax of Mark's story. It's the pinnacle of all trades, so to speak. 
Go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 8, just a few pages over. We find out that Jesus is asking his disciples to make a choice when everything is on the line. And people who have been following Jesus day in, day out, they're seeing all these things. Where they have to make a conscious decision about what they are leaving behind is worth giving up for what they are going to get in return. And this is what Mark chapter 8 verse 27 says. Jesus and his disciples, again, they're in community together. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Or excuse me, who do people say that I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. And Jesus turns it to a personal question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And here's why that's important. Because if you are going to say that Jesus is the Messiah, then you have to make a trade. You have to trade what you know for what you don't. You have to trust that the Messiah is actually going to make you something that you're not already. If you're going to say that Jesus is the Messiah, then you have to make a trade. To better understand the context of this conversation, it's incredibly important to understand a few things. This idea, this concept of a Messiah was nothing uncommon for the day. And Jesus wasn't the only one going around claiming to be the Messiah. The Jewish people were incredibly eager for the Messiah to come. They couldn't wait. They would, they would sit on the edge of their chairs in hopes and expectation that the Messiah would one day come. But in order for someone to be the true Messiah, a few things would have to happen. So when Jesus gets the answer from Peter about Jesus being the Messiah, this is a big deal. Here's three things that the Messiah had to happen. Number one, the Messiah would have to rebuild or cleanse the temple, the most holy place in the Jewish faith. Number two, He would have to defeat the enemy that was a threat to the people of God. In this case, in a tangible way, it was Rome. And he would have to bring about the restorative justice and to make all things right again, how God intended them to be. So when Peter answers Jesus as the Messiah, he's he's saying more than just, "Ah, you're a good leader, you're a good man, you're a good prophet. He's actually saying, I believe that you can do these three things that the Messiah is supposed to do. I believe that you can cleanse the temple. I believe that you can defeat the enemy. And I believe that you will make all things right again. This is a big deal for him to say, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But I would suggest that even the disciples and even Peter had no earthly idea how big of a claim that this would actually mean. Although three things were required, what wasn't agreed upon is how this would come about. And Jesus knew that what they had in mind for him was significantly different than what his plan and what the Father's plan were for Jesus. Jesus is doing more than just these three things. He's performing miracles, things that people had never seen before. After all, raising people from the dead, feeding people with little, Making lame people walk and deaf people hear and blind people see wouldn't put someone in good graces of the religious leaders, right? 
He's definitely ruffling feathers, including those who you would think would be on his side, who you would think would be behind him, the religious leaders, the very people who were eager for the Messiah to come. So why the conflict? Why is this such a big deal? Why are, why are feathers being ruffled? How was Jesus's mission as Messiah different than what the Jewish people and Jewish leaders had expected? So in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? The disciples have to make a choice. They have to make a choice. They don't say you're a good teacher. You're a powerful miracle worker. You're a worthy leader. And Peter replies with this. You are the anointed one, the Messiah. Do you see the importance of this answer? Here's where things get tricky. The disciples rightfully acknowledge, right, that Jesus is the Messiah. But it's almost as if they didn't understand because Jesus wanted to dive in a little bit further and clarify a little bit more about why this was a big deal. So he drives it home with this in verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. He says this, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Again, they're together. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. In other words, the disciple had no problem declaring that Jesus was the Messiah when it came to the power or the influence that he would have in their lives. But Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood just how important this really was. He wanted to understand exactly what was on the line here because declaring him as Messiah does not mean it's a fast pass to honor and prestige and more money, although we would like to think it that way. Because I would suggest that trading up also means becoming less. Trading up means letting go and trading up means becoming less. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is essentially saying you're right in when you answer the question of who I say I am. I am the Messiah. Yes. But there's going to come a day when people are going to want to kill me. And by the way, they're going to kill me. And if at that time you would still answer the question, you are the Messiah, Jesus. You are the Christ, Jesus. If you still testify to what you've seen and heard, then, by the way, it might cost you your very lives. Declaring Jesus is the Messiah meant making a trade. Making a trade for what the world may have anticipated, for what Jesus was asking. Jesus is not here to force himself on anyone. It's a conscious decision that each and every single one of them had to make. Which is why, soon after Peter declares the Messiah to be Jesus, Jesus goes on to say, yes, this is true. But the kind of Messiah that this world needs, the kind of Messiah with a divinely with a divinely appointed power in order for me to be that kind of messiah i have to die this would baffle the minds of his disciples right we can't trade what this world should be 
for what it is now. We can't trade this world for what it is now, for what it should be by force. Jesus isn't here to force himself on anybody. It can only happen by dying. And this would blow the minds of the 12 disciples who had walked day in and day out with Jesus for a matter of years. And he goes on to say that dying isn't just something that he would have to do. That each and every single one of us would have to do in order to follow him. That means dying to what was, dying to your allegiance, dying to your pride, dying to your stubbornness, dying to what you think you want in life, dying to your misguided expectations. In other words, dying to self. And this ragtag group of men whom Jesus calls one by one to do life together in community day in and day out. They saw life change happen one by one by one, not because of a list of things that they did to be more spiritual than others, but instead because they allowed Jesus to work through them and change the lives of those whom they were around day in and day out. They allowed Jesus to work through them in the very thing that he called them to, to follow me. They figured out ways day in and day out to allow themselves to be used for the life change of others. And in this process, the idea of spiritual maturity is redefined. Spiritual maturity is redefined. It's no longer a list of things that I can do better than you or you can do better than me. In an effort to show this to you guys today, I wanted to bring in a Illustration. See, I don't know about you, but for so long we have fallen into the trap that perhaps being more spiritual than somebody else is all about this, this cup representing us, is all about us filling us with as much spiritual things as we can. There was a moment in our life when we could only handle so much of God, right? We accepted Christ. We're like, hey, I think I can do this thing more spiritual. I think I can read scripture a little bit more. I think I can give a little bit more to God. And I just want to fill all these things. I want to fill all of my time and I want to fill all of my energy and my resources with God. And so we moved to it from a small cup to a medium cup. And we get this medium cup and we find ourselves attending more and more church stuff. And we're like, hey, I can go to church all the time. I can start serving at this thing and serving at that thing. And, and we, before too long, we moved to a bigger cup. Man, look at how spiritual I am. I've done all these lists of things. And I think we've fallen into the trap of thinking that our spiritual journey is all about just getting a bigger cup. Can I do this a little bit more to be able to get a bigger cup? Can I do that a little bit more to be able to get a bigger cup? I read scripture a little bit more. I even led a Bible study. Look at all these things that I've done. I, now I got a big old cup. And I would submit to you that you weren't created to be a cup. You weren't created to be a container. Regardless of what size it is, you were not created to be a container because the truth is you were created with a handle and a spout. You were created to be a pitcher. You were created to be a dispenser. Because as God's goodness is poured into you, his goodness is made complete when it begins to be poured out of you. 
In our context, there has to be a recipient. There has to be someone on the receiving end of God's goodness as it's being made complete in you and it's pouring into the lives of other people. It's not just about getting a bigger cup. It's about being a pitcher. It's not just about doing all the list of right things and and not doing the list of wrong things. It's about being a pitcher, a dispenser of God's grace and goodness in your life that as it's poured into you, it is made complete as it is poured out of you. It's not just about getting a bigger cup. It's not just about getting all this knowledge for me. It's about being a dispenser for those in our communities. It's about you leveraging your relationships for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, you're going to get together with each other. Yeah, you're going to enjoy meals together. Yeah, you may study scripture together. But I would suggest to you that you are not in it for yourselves because you don't exist for yourselves. You exist for those who are not here yet. Yeah, you might read scripture, but guess what? There may be people in your communities who may never read the Bible, but they will read your lives. Three things that happen in a community. Number one, when Jesus is at the center, there is life change. When Jesus is at the center, there is life change. It doesn't mean it's always about people going from death to life, although that is incredibly important. But there's some version of life change. And yes, it might take time. But guess what? God is not necessarily interested in just your statement. He's interested in how you surrender to your life and your calling to be something that you're not already. When Jesus is at the center, there's life change. If you would look at the communities that you're a part of and you would answer the question, is Jesus at the center? Number two, when Jesus is at the center, there's depth. You're going to study scripture. You might have meals together. Yes, but it's not about you and what you can gain. It's not about getting a bigger cup. Number three, when Jesus is at the center, there is great joy. So the question for you is what is at the center of your community? Man, I don't even know what to do with all that. What do I do with what I've just heard? Practically, real quick. If you're not in a group and you don't do life together with a group of people who are like-minded, who say, man, let's study scripture together. I would suggest to you real simply today, before you even get home, to get on our website and find a list of our groups And say, I want to be a part of a biblical community where we do life together, where Jesus is at the center, where there's life change happening, where there's joy happening. Through life's ups and downs, I want to be a part of a community. We've got women's groups and men's groups and couples groups and family groups and anything and everything in between, studying a variety of things. Are you a part of a community? And maybe if you were to just be honest with yourself, that's great, that's fine and dandy, but I don't even have time. Have you seen my schedule for, for crying out loud? I don't have time for that. If God's called you not to be a cup, but instead to be a dispenser because you were created with a handle and a spout, then what would it look like for you to bring Jesus to the communities in which you are already a part of? Because I would also tell you that that trading up means living sent. 
It means letting go. It means becoming less. It also means living sent. What if you were to start a devotional time or a Bible study around your, your break room at work? What if you were to ask to pray for those who you are in community with on the soccer field before you guys kick off or your kids kick off the various games? What if you were to bring Jesus to the communities that you are already a part of? Here's what I can tell you will happen. When there's a crisis, you will be someone that they at least consider calling. That is because the disciples are not called out just to sit back and relax. Instead, the disciples are called out in order to be sent out, in order to be a dispenser, not to get a bigger cup. That's why Grace Point would decide, would, would define a disciple as be, being a fully, as becoming a fully obedient multiplier following Christ. Because we are to be a dispenser. The truth is that some of us in this room has not, have not traded in our life for something that we don't necessarily know about. And I would ask you one simple way to be able to do that. Just a starting point. It's to start by trading in your time for some of God's time. What would that look like? We're actually, as a church, beginning today, March the 6th, we're beginning a 40-day reading plan as we prepare our hearts for Easter. It's a chance that we get to read Scripture collectively. We get to make comments collectively about how the Holy Spirit is speaking through His Word to our hearts as we prepare them for the Easter season. In your worship guides, you'll have a QR code, a chance to be able to text in to 97000, the keyword GPC Bible. In return, you're going to get a link. Click on that link. Join the reading plan collectively as a church body. It's an effort for us to trade in our time in order to spend more time with God. But I think it's important that we understand that Jesus is interested in how we respond to the question that he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And if you notice in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, the last two words that he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The last two words there are the exact same two words that he uses to call the very first disciples in scripture. Come follow me. I don't know what needs to be traded in your life. I don't know what kind of baggage that exists behind you, but what I do know is that the exact same calling that Jesus placed on his disciples' lives in Mark chapter one is the exact same question. The exact same calling that he's, he's calling to each one of us, come follow me. And the question that he asked in Mark chapter eight, who do you say I am is the exact same question that we have to make a cognitive answer in our brain about what to leave behind in order to grab a hold of the unknown in the future. But the promise is the same. He's calling us to follow him and he will make us something that we are not already. I don't know what, what your past is. I don't know what brought you here today. I don't know if it's your first time or your 400th time or anywhere in between. I don't know if you've been a believer for 50 years or more, and I don't know if this is the first time that you've ever crossed the threshold of a church. 
But what I do know is the question that Jesus asks each and every single one of us, we must answer cognitively and we must answer in our heart. Who do you say that I am? Because if you're gonna say that Jesus is the Messiah, we have to make a trade. Here's what scripture would say. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says that what we earn for that sin is to be eternally separated from him. The wages of sin is death. It's a spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 10, verse nine and 10 says that if we believe in our heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, then we will be saved. If you've never answered the question, who is Jesus to you? And today will be the day that you say, I wanna follow Jesus for the first time. In just a few moments, I'm gonna walk off the stage and I'm gonna stand right back there by that back door. And if you say, I wanna follow Jesus for the very, very first time, my challenge to you is you just get up during this next song that we're gonna sing. You get up, you come back to me and you say, I wanna follow Jesus. If you've followed Jesus last week or last month or last year, but the truth is you've never followed him in baptism. Baptism is a symbol, just like this wedding ring that I wear is a symbol that I'm married to my bride for nearly 20 years. Baptism is a symbol and next week we get to celebrate with those who have given their life to Christ. It's kind of the first step in confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead through the symbolism of baptism. And if you've never been baptized by immersion, after salvation, after answering the question, who is Jesus? Then my invitation to you simply is sign up for the opportunity to be able to be baptized next week. We'd love to hear your story and celebrate with you through what that looks like. Who do you say Jesus is? I'll tell you this, he's more interested in our surrender than he is about our statement. He's more interested in us leaving behind, letting go, and pressing on for what's ahead, even though we may not know what that looks like every single day. Let's pray. Father, today, as there's folks in the room from all different walks of life, who've experienced life change together in community, who've experienced life change only because of the goodness of you. God, I pray that the folks in this room who have never surrendered their heart, who have never surrendered their life to you for the first time, I pray that today they do not walk out of the threshold of the doors without answering the question, who do you say I am. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Sent.